Um, I'm trying to think if there's a, what we can read here. It's, it's covering 21 and 22, and there's all sorts of uh, things going on here. No good way to break this up. So maybe what I'll do is just kind of uh, run through. And hopefully I get you guys to read these perhaps on your own and kind of stay up with it because it's, uh, there's a lot of good stuff in here that you, know, you just can't really deal with it all uh, in detail. But uh, in 21, David, of course, is on the run uh, from, Saul, from Saul, and he goes to Ahimelech, the high priest, uh, where the uh, temple was, tabernacle was, and he said, hey, do you have any uh, food for me and my men? And uh, Ahimelech said, well, we just finished the uh, changing out the showbread. The showbread, generally, the priest ate that, and he said, you're welcome to it. So, And, and David uh, kind of approaches him under false pretenses. He says, I'm on a uh, mission for Saul, which was a lie, and we'll deal with that in a moment. Uh, but anyway, he gets him. But, so Ahimelech innocently gives him the bread to eat and helps him out, him and his men out. And then he... Uh, Gets Saul's sword, or excuse me, uh, Samson's sword that was they, they kept at the tabernacle, and uh, he leaves and goes to Gath and the Philistines, and of course the head of the Philistines, um, Achish, uh, doesn't know what to do with David, and his uh, his men want him to kill David because he's the one who killed Samson, right? He, he's our enemy, and. David kind of hears what they're doing, so he acts like uh, he's insane to some degree, like he's crazy. And Akish says, and eh, he's innocent. You know, he, what is, he's, he's no threat. And then David leaves. In chapter 22, he goes to the cave of, of Adullam, stays there for a little, for a little bit, gathers uh, about 400 men at that point, eventually 600 men. We'll talk about that. Uh, then heads to, and, and of course he's, you know, only, never stays anywhere too long because Saul finds out about it and so forth. And then he goes down to Moab. Of course he has a connection with Moab. Remember his great grandmother, uh, was from Moab, right? Ruth, right? So, uh, there's a, there's a little connection there. They take care of him for a while. Saul, uh, then there's a man while David was getting the bread with, from Ahimelech, the high priest, Doag, the Edomite was there. And he was a sympathizer of Saul, so he goes back and he lies and says Ahimelech helped David and kind of spins it like Ahimelech's in cahoots with David, which was not the truth of the case. Saul then, uh, unjustly, again we'll deal with some of these things, has Ahimelech and all the priests killed. His men refused to do it, so he had Doag do it. Doag literally kills all the priests and their families in the city, their cities, men, women, children, and all the animals under Saul's direction. So pretty uh, awful scenario going on there. And uh, then, uh, and so we'll, we'll deal, those are some of the things we want to deal with today. All right. So um, last week, then we we'll get to it here in a second. There we go. Uh, we saw the covenant between Jonathan and David, and I've deliberately been a little obtuse about this because we will see where it's all leading when we get to Second Samuel. But this great covenant between David and Jonathan, uh, because they had, they were like bosom buddies, maybe uh, some we would use, they were the best friends, uh, very close. 
And Jonathan knew that uh, the way of kings were that when you became king, if you, you uh, a different line became king, you would kill all the family of the old king. Because so there was no one to claim the right to the throne. And Jonathan realized then, because he knew David was going to be king, he says, look, promise me that you will uh, be kind to me and specifically my family if and when you become king. And I think Jonathan perhaps knew there was a possibility he was not going to be around. So he says, I want you to promise that you will uh, take care of my family. And so we, we saw that this is a great illustration of the eternal covenant. David, as we get to Second Samuel, will be seen as a type of the Father, Jonathan a type of Christ. All those in, of Jonathan's descendants that, that are, in a sense, under a curse, and we'll get into that later too, is a type of us, right? Fallen mankind that the Father loves because of his love for the Son. Uh, he loves us, and uh, he promises to save all who will be of the Son. So, just some uh, great things going on there. Before we get into chapter uh, 21, though, let me just say a few more thoughts about this relationship between David and Jonathan. And uh, I would just point out that th- this is a great thing, something that we are, is good for us to just stop and think about when we think about their commitment to each other, because the, 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 the thing that's neat about this especially is that once Jonathan is dead and, and David becomes king, sometime in the future, he doesn't just forget about Jonathan and all oh, pleasant memories. He, he looks around. I want to find somebody of Jonathan's descendants in order to display my love to them because I promise it to Jonathan. I love Jonathan and I want to love his descendants as I promised to do. You know, he was motivated by that love for Jonathan. Again, show, illustrated in the eternal covenant as well. But it's just something that, that when we think about this, is there anything in our life that we are committed to with this kind of commitment in love? It should, it should go without saying that this ought to apply, first of all, to our love for Christ. In other words, if, if these two human beings can have commitment like this to each other, uh, it's certainly an example of true godly love, then we should be able to, to look at that commitment and say, okay, look, uh, that should be at least how much I'm committed to Christ. That should be at least how much I'm committed to my wife, to my husband, to my children, to my church, right? All these things. In other words, this is a, a great example of commitment. And sometimes I wonder, you know, are we committed to anything like this? You know, it's, it's not uncommon today that loves that might start off uh, seem to be loving soon or sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly dissolves into disinterest and coldness. We become so shallow because we really, we love ourselves, we love pleasure or whatever the case might be. We don't, we find it hard to commit to anybody. And that's, that's a character problem if we're like that, right? And uh, of course, Jesus said, well, Paul tells us that in the last days, love will wax cold. And, I, and again, I believe the Last days began uh, at Pentecost, but um, it's it's in a sense you think about it. Any place where the gospel does not have an effect, wherever paganism rules, and we're certainly 
in that today, but that we're not used to in America. But we're, we live in a very paganistic, naturalistic society today. And you see love waxing cold when the gospel doesn't have influence upon a society, right? A, a people. And you, you, I mean, the, the, when you've got the governor of California basically just, it's open season on children, on babies, right? Uh, love is waxing cold. And you've got to have mothers and parents who are committed like that too for that to happen, right? And so, there's something that we, we should be able to examine our, in ourselves and say, look, am I capable of loving as I have been loved by Christ? Do I love my family? Am I committed to them uh, in that sense as well? And again, that I think it will ride on over into the church uh, in, in God's people. The, the gospel, spiritual things should bring out our greatest emotions in some ways, right? I mean, not that there's not other things that bring out our emotions, but certainly when we hear the gospel, when we, when our Christian brothers or sisters are in need or, or have problems, uh, if, if we're compassionate at all, those things should be there. That that should bring these things out to us. And uh, so I hope that these are the things for us to consider. We don't want to become so drunk with pleasure and wealth that truth and right and spiritual matters are seem almost unimportant, right? And so, as I said, eventually we're going to find David seeking to do good to Jonathan's descendants because even though it might be some time later, he has not forgotten the kind of love that uh, he had. And I'm certainly thankful that God doesn't forget us like we tend to do, that his love doesn't wane like ours so often does. He doesn't get distracted or disinterested. He keeps his word. He does good to us. He never gets tired of doing that. It means something to his word means something to him, and, uh, and and so, you know, when First John three one, oh, what manner of love that we should be called the children of God, right? It's, it's a, it just shows that God committed Himself to us from eternity, and it, it doesn't wane. And so, just some, I think, good things for us to think about. Well, this brings us into uh, the text that we just got through uh, summarizing, <clears throat> and. We really, at this point, begin to study David as a fugitive. Uh, from now on, you know, even last week, there were, he was still at home to some degree. He was in front of Saul. Saul was throwing javelins at him. They had some interaction. But now, pretty much, David leaves, and he's on the run until that time that Saul is killed. And he gathers at first 400 men and later 600 men in his small army. And in this chapter, he goes to Abimelech and lies to him in order to get help from him. And there's the commentators, you know, question, you know, I think rightly so, it's something to think about. Was David right in lying? It's generally assumed no. Um, and, and of course, again, we, we've talked about the fact that in, in life in this situations, there are those in scripture that lied and that I don't think that is necessarily seen as a, as a wrong thing. But remember, David was told he's going to be king. That he, So there, therefore, Saul was not going to kill him. So, you know, was David exercising faith here? And I think there's some indications that he's a C a little bit, right? He, he's not really sure what to do. He's obviously in the, on the run. He gets Goliath's sword. And, you know, there are those who question why it didn't do Goliath any good. Uh, he had a slingshot, 
This Lord, no doubt, was probably bigger than any normal man could have used effectively anyway. So did he? why did he get that? It just seems like David, again, is a little, uh, he's wandering, he's not sure. And, and I will grant that, and that's okay, because first of all, it's a great example for us. So sometimes we are floundering, we're not really sure what to do. But what I want us to keep in mind as we go through this, <clears throat> is that while these things are happening, while he is in Gath, while he is in the cave of Adullam, and so forth, all these experiences, there are specific psalms that are being written. So David is not falling into depression. He might be depressed at times. He might be fearful. I mean, he obviously was fearful at, at different times, right? But he is uh, thinking about God. He is writing psalms. He is expressing his need to the Lord, his trust to the Lord. He's, he's utilizing the time to grow closer to Christ. He's not off feeling sorry for himself. and I don't want to be around anybody. You know, people come to him, I don't want to be around. No, we find him actually people are being drawn to him. So I just think it's kind of interesting and, and a good example for us to think about. <clears throat> of course, we know the Old Testament doesn't always stop at each story and tell us, you know, how to interpret each action, whether this is sinful or not. And, and so that's why we don't want to be overly harsh in our critic of, criticism of some of these guys in the Old Testament especially. It, though, the Bible is merely relating events, and in a lot of cases we can tell uh, whether it is good or not by the way the Lord reacts to these things. But there's certainly no attempt here to make David appear better than he is, which is typical of the Word of God, and I think it shows the divine nature of the Bible. And David is, physically speaking, humanly speaking, in a no-win situation, in an unprecedented situation. He's on the run from Saul, he goes to Ahimelech, and he no doubt doesn't want to involve Ahimelech, you know, so he lies to him so that Ahimelech uh, is free from knowingly abetting David, right? But the problem is, of course, that he dies anyway. And so David's doing the best he can, and I'll leave it at that. Um, but one thing I would maybe take away from this is, as I said, that David knew he was to be king, and with such knowledge, um, it seems that there are times when he, it, that should keep him from doing certain things because he knows how it's going to turn out. And there's an application for us in that sense that, well, we know we're going to die if the Lord doesn't come back first. And we don't know how we're going to die. But we know that no matter at some point we're going to be in glory, that that has a huge effect on how we live, how we speak, how we interact with others. It keeps us from doing certain things because we know that the Lord's in control. Just the sovereignty of God, that the whole doctrine of the sovereignty of God keeps us from doing a lot of things because we know that God will take care of it. When God says, vengeance is mine, I'll repay. Right? So, the word of God should have a tremendous effect upon the way we conduct our lives because we know who wins in the end and we know what the Bible has told us to do. So, whether David, of course, does all this perfectly or not, we can think about these things as we go through it. Um, but maybe, you know, he's inconsistent in his faith. 
no doubt, to some degree, and it gives us reason to try to see where we, too, sometimes are inconsistent, but sometimes we do well, sometimes we don't do well, and, well, that's what believers have been fighting ever since the fall. And that's okay. We want to learn. It's better to learn from other people's mistakes, right, than it is to have to go through it yourself. And part of maturity in an adulthood, I think, is eventually beginning to realize, you know, that doesn't work out for anybody else. Why am I going to do that? You know, I'm not going to get involved in that. You know, that's the, the, the problem with youth often. Is, you know, they, they their peer pressure is, is so strong, and they do things that don't ever work, but they haven't been around sometimes long enough to figure it out. And, of course, it's sad when uh, people who are older don't listen and don't think through things as well. But that just reminds us why... Adulthood, maturity, which can begin at young age, by the way. Uh, part of that is to be able to think through issues and not just jump the gun or ignore it and just say, "Well, I, you know, my friends are doing this, so I'm going to do it," and not no never thought through the consequences and especially what the Word of God says about these things. So, anyway, just some things to think about. Verse 7 of 21 says that Doag was detained before the Lord. He was at the tabernacle at the time. And what that means is, uh, it's it, it language that says that he, <clears throat> he was not a Jew as such. He was an Edomite, but he obviously had to live according to the law if he was going to live there. So he ceremonially had to be there at that point. But it's telling us that he wasn't there by accident. Uh, even though he was there for a certain reason, the Lord wanted him there because this was God's will to happen. And what we're being told is that we're, we're to watch the Lord orchestrate all this. And so he was loyal to Saul. And you can almost see his eyes, you know, uh, narrow as he sees what's going on and can't wait to go tell Saul. And, you know, that tells you a lot about his character, right? We don't want to be like that. Um, We've already talked about the bread of uh, presence. Um, one thing I would just talk about there is, remember we talked about this, I think it was uh, in Sunday in morning mess- messages last week maybe or recently, that the ceremonial laws were given to point to something else. That they are, we have to be careful that we, if the Jews have, struggled with this, and we want to be struggled with those, these things too, that we don't look at those things as an end in themselves. And so that's why David, and the Lord later points back to this instance where David ate what was supposed to be for the priest, because at the end of the day, um, the, 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 it, it's, it's what's good for us. And like the Sabbath, Jesus says, man was not made for the Sabbath, the Sabbath institution isn't the big thing. It is that the Sabbath was given for man's good. <clears throat> we used that, of course, with talking about divorce and remarriage last week, that we've got to be very careful that we don't make marriage, the institution of marriage, which is going to end at death, right, To, to uh, that, that we got to make people be miserable uh, it, it be, just so we're trying to uphold the institution of marriage. And it's a difficult subject. I'm not trying to oversimplify it, but that's kind of the idea here. So we, we, this is another thing we see here with. Um, I get my little clipper to work. I got my battery clipper going out on the thing. If you may help me out, uh, Rick. 
<clears throat> but here's just some passages that point some of these things out. By now, but now that you have been have come to God or come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? And these weak and elementary principles of the world are speaking about the Mosaic Law. You know, it's not just, it certainly can apply with anything where we overemphasize material things over spiritual, but he's talking about these who wanted the Christians to go back to keep the law. And what Paul's saying here is the way those things were given to teach about spiritual things, living in the spiritual kingdom of God, if, if you go, think you've got to go back and eat like they did and, and, and keep wash like they did, you, you're missing the point. That's, that's spiritually fulfilled there. And, and so you're becoming slaves again to those things. Galatians 4.10 You observe days and months and seasons and years and he said, I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. He's saying, look, if, if you really can't seem to understand what I'm saying, it's possible you're, you don't even, you're not saved. You haven't even been converted. Because your religion is, a, is an outward conformity and not an inward reality. Colossians 2.16 Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or in regards to a festival, a new moon, or a Sabbath, these are shadow of things to come, but the subject belongs to Christ. So, again, some people were, especially some Jewish Christians, had trouble letting go of some of those things, that, that they were raised in that, and, and, and there's nothing wrong with, with a lot of that stuff, uh, certainly, as they came out of. But Paul says, you know, if you, if you didn't really care whether you wanted to eat kosher or not, but he says, if you think that you have to do that, if you are trying to force others to do that, now we've got a problem because you have lost sight of what those things spoke of in truly serving the Lord. Um, down in... Next screen here, please. Colossians 2.21 Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These, are, these were the legalists saying that you've got to... Uh, do things according to the word of to the old Mosaic law, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. Interesting that that which was given by the Lord are now seen as human precepts and teachings because they were given for a time. They were fulfilled in Christ. And so after that, once you continue in those things, you now are following after human Teaches that Jesus first told the same thing to the Pharisees. These indeed have appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they have no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Then one more in chapter 3, Colossians. Put on, then, as God chosen ones, holy and beloved. And then the reason I want to read this is because this is the filling in the void. In other words, it's one thing to say, okay, this, this is wrong, this, this idea or these actions are not right, but you always want to, okay, say, well, here's the right thing to do, right? So Paul is also saying, here's what you should be worried about and emphasizing. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. 
And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful that the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. I don't think that necessarily means just in church, although obviously in church we do that, but that should be something we do all the time. I mean, all the songs that we sing, um, I listen to all the time. I, I mean, always listen to them. Well, always, but you know, when I have opportunity, I listen to these songs. I sing those songs in my heart or, you know, out loud. Not just at church, right? I assume they're all like that, but why wouldn't you do that? And whatever you do in word and deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him, which again, Colossians 3.17 is me, New Covenant Law keeping. That that's the law, the royal law of Christ. And all this is. This is this is being like Christ. How many times does the, what Christ done for us uses the the motivation? He forgave us, you forgive others. The peace of Christ that we have in our hearts it, it helps us to be one body together, right? That that's just following Christ the law of Christ. And that's what we that's our law. You know, not not the Mosaic law. It's not that those aren't good principles in there that are good for us and help help can be helpful. But if it but but all the the, the, the physical things, the diet the diets and the washings and the sacrifices, if you're still caught up in that stuff, for instance, Seventh day Adventists would be an example of that, and the Seventh day Baptist, which pops to mind sometimes, but, but lots of Christians are, are religious groups that are still caught up in that. They miss the point. And so, those are just things that we need to think of from time to time. So, um, verse 10, back in, in chapter 21, David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. Again, here, he's kind of from this point on, from, you know, on the run. Um, takes Saul's or Goliath's sword for whatever reason and we, we talked about these but even again while he's in uh, Gath and the cave he's writing Psalm like Psalm 34 Psalm 56 you can go back on the headings you can see that many times it tells you what David's going through so he's not just running in fear you know in depression and, and whatever else he is using these things, and and, and we, we've already talked about how, from the very beginning, while he was a shepherd, he he understood that God was helping him, and, and he was you know in the habit of relating everything to Christ and to to, to God, and and uh, coming to Him for help and, and to praise Him for answered prayer. So the point we need to see is not whether every action of David is necessarily the best one. But perhaps a couple other things we need to see. First of all, these things are coming on David to produce godliness, as we see in the resulting psalms that he writes. Right. So, and David was a godly man. So that that's a you know something that over and over again the Bible always makes sure that we need to understand what's going on around us is for a purpose, and if it's not strengthening us, we're not handling it right. 
if it doesn't drive us to Christ, if it doesn't produce holiness in us, then whatever we're doing with life and circumstances, we're not doing a good job. So it's certainly something we want to keep uh, in mind. Um, and again, I think a lot of us would, in, in a situation where we're on the run for our life, would fall into depression and be on meds. Today, that's how we handle our problems. And again, it's not to say that's always the wrong thing, but clearly something is wrong. But that's, that's the best we can do. Um, so David understands this and is not wasting time or in a panic. He's not complaining uh, at every turn, but he's taking the time to reflect on what is happening and how to learn from it. He's redeeming the time. He knows the spiritual reasons behind all these things. He's not just trying to survive, which again, I think a lot of people fall into that idea. I'm just trying to cope. You ever hear that? We've, we've all said it. I'm just coping. Well, coping, you know, we've all got to cope. The problem is, how do we cope as Christians? Do we cope by rejoicing in the Lord, by feeding on the Word of God, right? By serving, by loving others. Do we cope or do we just cope? By the way, the world does. It's something we need to be really careful to think about. He realized that none of this makes sense unless it has any meaning apart from the Lord. Right? Um. So he's he's not learning that. Well, I'm just I got lucky here. You know, we can see some times where, in one case, Saul comes around one side of the mountain and David and his men go around the other side and just miss each other. The point there is not, well, boy, wasn't David lucky, right? No, he's learning how God will take care of him. Um, here's one thing he learned. You find over in Psalm 34, 11. Come, O children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days, that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. So these are some of the things that David um was learning, and he puts that on paper. He's not willing to just bottle it up, but he's going to tell others and teach others. So it brings us to chapter 22, where David is seen in the cave of Adullam, and we learn that actually in that area, there were caves that, and some of them were the size of basketball courts. So again, you can see this is a very accurate account. And that notice that it says here, um, in verse 1, David parts here and escapes from the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And I think that obviously refers to his the six or seven brothers that he had, his family, uh, who would have probably been realized that they were in a precarious situation uh, with the way Saul is, is acting. But, verse 2, everyone who was in distress and everyone was, who was in debt, everyone who was bitter in soul, gathered to him. Um, those who were discontented, probably those who, uh, you know, had been wronged by Saul, you know, whatever the reason were, they go to him and eventually he, he has 600, uh, an army of 600 men plus others. Who were uh, they were taken care of? In fact, we'll see at one point there were men and women, their families were with them because eventually they get carried off, and David and his men go and rescue them, so forth. I'm pretty sure that hope I didn't speak out of turn. I'm pretty sure that happens. 
Um, so he, so you gotta sometimes you gotta as you're reading through the things you gotta stop and you gotta think. Now where have I heard all this before, right? So here is a man who, in a sense, starts to gather a little kingdom around him and uh, among a wicked kingdom. He has a small group of followers. In verse 3, we know that David had a connection with Moab, so he uh, moves his family down there for safety. But, it, you know, you can't help but think of Jesus Christ, right? Who um, sets up kingdom in Pentecost, you know, he goes back, he's sitting upon the throne, and he's what? Gathering all those who realize that something's wrong, that things aren't right, and they see a savior in the Lord Jesus Christ, and so they gather into the church, and the church starts growing, and the church starts growing, and it's been growing now for 2,000 years. So, they know that David is going to be king, uh, and, and again, this is it, not to say it's a perfect illustration, but they know that joining with David now is going to mean glory later. It's going to, it's going to work out for our good. In, in a sense, that's what happened when we got saved. We realized that Christ is the king. All, he's the heir of all things. I better lay hold of Christ, not just for the forgiveness of sins, but for my eternal destiny. Because this world is passing away. This prince of power of the air now, Saul, he, he's already been condemned. It just hasn't happened yet, right? So I'm not going to cast my lot with him. I'm going to cast my lot with David or his greater son, Jesus Christ. And so, just uh, I think a really neat little thing to notice there. Of course, Spurgeon points out that if David had prayed much, as much in the palace as in the cave, he probably would have been spared a lot of suffering. And that's one thing we've alluded to this, but we'll see it very starkly. That David here is seen as a, a strong believer, a, a great man. Everything he does pretty much turns to gold in a sense. And as soon as he basically comes to a place of peace and most of his enemies are destroyed, he stays away from the battle in his palace and falls into uh, adultery with Bathsheba. And everything starts to go downhill with David at that point. So, again, case study in finishing well or not finishing well, right, as Christians. You, there's no point. I don't care how old you are. I just turned 63. And there's absolutely no excuse to take it easy to think that uh, I've gotten to a point where I can coast to heaven. I don't care how old you are. Uh, that will always lead to problems that they, I think, will give us a good example of that later on. So, Doag, in verse 6 of chapter 22, in an attempt to ingratiate himself with Saul, lies about Ahimelech, making it out like he knew full well what, he, what David was doing and, and, and sides with him. And we notice here that Saul you know, basically condemns them all to death. It's interesting here in Colossians, in 1 Chronicles 10, 13, this is kind of looking back and, and talking about Saul's death. So Saul died for his breach of faith. He broke faith with the Lord in that he did not keep the command of the Lord 
It also consult, and I think that probably refers primarily to what we've already studied with, uh, you know, killing all of the uh, Malachites and him refusing to obey there. But that's when the kingdom is ripped apart from his hand, from the, you know, his bone and the But he also consulted a medium, which we'll uh, see later on, seeking guidance. He did not seek guidance from the Lord. Therefore, the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, son of Jesse. The term breach of faith is used uh, elsewhere in Scripture to describe Israel when they fell, when they were carried off into Babylon. It was in captivity. It's because they broke a breach of faith with God. They did not obey Him. They did not trust in Him. They went their own way, right? And that's what happened with Saul. And so I think that, again, it's why I cannot see Saul as a believer uh, to, to, to deliberately murder uh, the people of God and women, children, and animals. I think it says all you need to know about Saul, but I guess there will be those who will debate that. But notice he's willing to destroy the children and the animals because he was offended, but when God told him to do that with the Amalekites. No, I, th- those I want to keep because they did defend Saul. People didn't have any beef with him as such. So let's keep some of these things alive, especially the animals. You know, we can use those. But these people who were innocent, only no one really offended him, but he was offended by Ahimelech. He, he's willing to kill all the women, children, and animals now because all of a sudden I'm offended. So, again, I think it says a lot about Saul, but we want to make sure that we don't see that kind of nonsense in our own heart. Right? It's, it's one thing, you know, and you see people that, they, they, you know, I've been offended, I've been hurt, I, you know, maybe deal with them, and you might say, well, you know, maybe you're overreacting. But then they do it to us, you find ourselves in the same situation at some point, and, you know, everything goes haywire. Because we are used to being offended ourselves, but when someone else is going to the same thing, we, we're not as compassionate. That's a serious sin. I mean, we need to be very careful about that. It's hypocritical. Um, that what's, what we tell others to do is what we should do. And, uh, as we see here, just, uh, just an awful, awful example of Saul. Well, um, but, you say, why did the Lord allow Ahimelech, excuse me, Ahimelech to be killed? And of course, not just Ahimelech, but remember, it went back, got all the families, the whole family line, because all these guys would have been related for the most part as priests. Well, we have already referred to that. Does anybody know why this took place in one sense? Why Ahimelech had to die? Not a king. Eli, Eli, right? Remember Eli because he was uh, let his sons just do what they wanted to do. God says at some point I'm going to cut off your whole family and you will cease to be. They will cease to be the priest and the high priest, right? Therefore, First Samuel two thirty. Therefore, the Lord God of Israel declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father 
should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, Far be it from me, for those who dishonor me I will honor, those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. So there was a promise initially that you shall be uh, forever in that situation as a priest, but the Lord has changed his mind. Now we know, of course, the Lord doesn't change his mind, but because of their unfaithfulness, the Lord properly reacts as he also said he would do, right? And so in this case, behold, verse 31, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eyes on all the prosperity that shall be the son of Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out to grief in his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall be shall die by the sword of men. There it is. You see that God's when he says something, it will happen. And and the Lord is we just the whole Bible is it's just especially the Old Testament though, because it's such a historical book. Just shows that the Lord working uh, at at every turn, right? I, there, I was reading about a uh, just as an illustration, a Polish pilot who, in about 1938, is had, had engine problems that he had to land in Austria. And uh, while he was at the hotel there, his plane was being worked on. A man runs in. The stop oil coming. The stop oil coming. And he takes this man, who was a Jew, obviously, and he hides him in his room uh, in the covers. He was a thin man, and he made it look like there was that he was he that he had been asleep when they barged into his room, and uh, you know he had his papers on order. They didn't search the room, and, and he saved this Jewish man from the Gestapo, even in 1938, and they were rounding him up, and he uh, then. The, the, the Jewish man was wanting to go back to uh, Warsaw, but he says, you know, if I take you back in my plane and we land there, you'll be arrested in Warsaw. So he says, I will, he landed in the field, let the Jewish man out in the field, and then he went about his business. So he escaped when, when Germany took over Poland. He escapes, as Pilate does, uh, to Romania, eventually a central company concentration camp where he escapes from there, gets into France, joins their um, air force, flies for them. When France falls, he escapes to England and starts to distinguish himself as a great uh, pilot for the Allies in England. Well, one day he shoots down, I think, five different German planes, one of them by ramming it with his plane. I don't know how this even works, but got a serious head wound Managed to, to land, but, uh, his, his skull had been crushed. He's unconscious when they find him in the plane. And, uh, they give him up for dead. Well, as it turns out, this Jewish man had escaped, uh, Poland, uh, when the Germans took over, was, in, ends up in Scotland, and is a surgeon. And when he hears about these Polish, uh, this Regiment that were doing so well, and about what happened in his one, he wondered if, if I wonder if that guy who saved me all those years ago was there. He, he starts to investigate, finds out he's the one with the crushed skull, and he uh, saves his life. 
he, he operates on him, and the guy wakes up, and he says, he, you know, he stands there and says, you recognize me, and, and he saves his life. And, and the, the, the neat thing about that is that it's just an amazing, as you see how God works all these things out, things that took place years before, all led to the point where this man, uh, is, is like to save because of what he did years before. Now, I don't know if these guys were saved, but, you know, they want a testimony to have. We have to go around and say, look, let me tell you of our great God and how he does things and works things out for our good. And that's what we need to always be seeing when we read these things and never get too far away from who's behind all these things. All right. Any questions or comments before we close? George. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for your love to us this day, for the uh, Word of God and how it always is fresh to us, always relevant. When we trust you and obey you, we find that things always work out better. Well, even if, if it brings upon about difficulty, we know that uh, you are behind these things and that there is an exceeding great reward for those who trust you and who die in faith. And uh, Lord, so we are comforted by those things. We just pray that you might give us wisdom as we study your word in Jesus' name.